That was outstanding. And the whole time as they were singing, I just couldn't help but to think that that's that one-fourth Montana blood flowing through, <laughs> through that family. One-fourth Montana blood. That's just my way of saying how proud I am of uh, the hills. Yes, there's a relation there. I'm very proud of them. And uh, uh, the other thing was just um, Christ in you, the hope of glory coming through these that family. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Well, Christ, the head of his church, has this church in the gospel of Matthew learning about the king and his kingdom. And so far in the chapter four, we're in chapter four. And we have seen that when Jesus begins his ministry, that he begins it at just the right time, that God has things clicking according to a divine time clock. And we also saw that Jesus begins his ministry in just the right places. God has just the right geographical location and the right people that he has divinely planned to be ministered to. And we also saw that Jesus has just the right message and that he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God without a confession of repentance and a profession of faith. And this morning we're going to see in this passage that Jesus does not intend to do all of the preaching, all of the ministering and all of the teaching alone. But he intends to share the responsibility And he also intends to share the joy of spreading the good news of salvation. And so in this passage, in these verses that we'll look at this morning, the king is building his team. He's building a team of followers. He's building a team of disciples. He's building his kingdom outpost, an outpost on earth to the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to talk about discipleship this morning and what it means to follow Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you consider yourself a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And have we hearkened his invitation to follow him? That's what we will consider this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Call or an invitation for discipleship. This is no small invitation. This isn't a, a, an invitation to attend a birthday party. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus puts it like this. He says, come, follow me. No, I'm sorry. It says, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This kind of following or or gathering this kind of learning. And the word disciple means basically learner, a pupil. This kind of learning is going to require great personal sacrifice. It's going to require even the burdens of different crosses in their lives. Now, who would want to do something like that? 
Who would want to give up what they know of as safe, um, give up the life that they know that's comfortable to them, the best way that they know how to make a living, and follow somebody that would require of them to make personal sacrifices? These are the very things that we try to avoid in life. We try to set ourselves up in such a way that we don't have to live in any kind of tension. We don't have to give things up. We only want to accumulate things. So... This is a call that involves a total change of lifestyle. Discipleship isn't something that you punch in in the morning and then you punch out in your clock in the evening. It's a 24-7 kind of following of Jesus. Because as the the greatest command tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and soul. So it's, it's your whole being that Jesus is inviting to follow him. What does it take to make people make such a huge change in their lives. It would take quite a bit for us to give up everything we know and to even add to that challenges of risk. I guess I would venture to say that it would either take um, possibly two things. It would take some great person that we would be willing to follow, somebody that we greatly love, we greatly respect, we revere, we adore in some kind of way that might do it. Or another thing that might motivate us to make such a change would be some great thing. Usually, if we're going to make a change, it's it's only because something better is offered. I've talked in my days as a pastor, I've talked to children of divorce and and they've needed uh, some counsel. And they'd say, you know, my 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 father or my mother has asked me to come and live with them instead of the other. And and. He said, I I, I want you to come and live with me and I I want you. It'll be a new life for you, a new school, a new set of friends, a a new home. And I want you to come and do life with me. I don't want to do life without you. And and sometimes it's that kind of inner respect or loyalty or devotion that children have to make these kind of hard decisions about. Or perhaps uh, that, that could be a person that would motivate them. But sometimes it might just be some great thing like a career change. Maybe somebody's given a, a tremendous offer for their career. And it's what they've been waiting for. And so they will, they will gladly give up what they know of as life. The comfortable things. Because it's an opportunity to better themselves. And I would venture to say in the the two greatest reasons that would motivate us to make such a life change are all found right here in this call to discipleship. Because Jesus is the greater person that's worthy to be followed. He is the one that is worthy of respect. He's the one that's worthy of love. And there's this greater thing also involved. He's inviting people to be a part of the kingdom of God, the real kingdom of God, where things happen. That don't happen in the natural world and things happen that we can't see with a natural eye. So this is a it's it's a risky proposition. It's a risky invitation, but it's a tremendously generous invitation for Christ to call people to join him in the ministry. The kingdom of God manifested on this earth. The words follow me. Who is it? Who is this me? That he is asking us to follow. Well, I won't rehash, but it's the four chapters that we have looked at so far. Three at least, but four or three and a half chapters in Matthew. The me is the king. The me is the Messiah. 
The me is the savior. The me is the one that the wise men came to bow down and worship and bear gifts to. The, the me is the one that has uh, the power to forgive sins. The me is the one that is greater than the other prophet ministering at the same time. John the Baptist, who has all kinds of followers at that time. The me is the one that heals diseases. The me is the one that can dispel the power of darkness and cast out demons. He's the one that is doing things that the world has never seen before to this magnitude. And we will see in our next passage, we'll look at the miracles of Christ. He's the conquering king. That he is far more worthy of any other person that we could ever follow. Far more worthy of any other person that we could ever love, ever adore, ever commit our lives to, ever make sacrifices to. He's worthy of every act of self-denial that we will ever make. He's worthy of every cross that we will ever bear in this walk of discipleship. That is the me. He is worthy for us to bow the knee to. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So this is, this is a great person that has sent out this invitation of discipleship. But we've looked at that. We've explored that. So I want to do is spend the rest of the morning examining for us to consider the words here. What does it mean to follow? And it's in this text. We'll look at it. And I'll also draw from a few other New Testament passages. But we want to be thinking this morning, what, what is God speaking to me in this revealed word, this holy word that he is putting forth this morning? What is stirring in my heart? Well, in verse 19, he speaks the words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the offer here. That's the invitation. And he gives us an idea of what this kind of following or this kind of discipleship will look like. It has to do with investing in other people. It doesn't end with us. It's not like. We have arrived with just the call of discipleship, but it involves thinking of others. It involves reaching out to others and including others in this kingdom as well. That's the fishers of men. So he he wants to make us in to something. It was a common practice in first century Judaism for teachers of the law to have disciples that followed them, the rabbis, the teachers, the mentors. And so people that wanted to learn the law, the law or wanted to be like these rabbis, they were perhaps impressed with them or their knowledge, or they just were hungry for the word of God. And so they would sometimes they'd give up some things, might be part time, might be full time, and they would follow these rabbis to learn. On rare occasion, if you had a rabbi that was very, very exceptional, this rabbi might uh, even um, get to pick and choose a little bit as far as who would be able to follow them. Not just anybody could follow them. You might have to have scored uh, a little bit higher on your spiritual SATs than the the average person in order to sit at their feet because they had that kind of reputation. So some would just kind of show up. And others kind of had to be maybe called out. Jesus handpicks his disciples. He invites them. 
He, he calls them. He does the seeking. He does uh, the, the calling. And as you can see, he does not call based on some kind of uh, spiritual aptitude or tremendous natural giftedness. Because if that's the kind of people that he desired to follow him at this time, he would not have been in Galilee and he wouldn't be calling the caliber of people that he was inviting. These guys, for the most part, they're fishermen, which means probably and these are full time fishermen. These aren't hobby fishermen like most of us or some of us and have a tackle box and a rod in the shop. They make a living off this stuff. They spend their time on the lake or on the sea. And they were very likely a little gruff. They were likely unrefined. They were certainly not the role models of society. They, people didn't go to them to gain knowledge about God or other things. More than likely, they blue collar. Um, they were uneducated. Who knows if they ever saw the inside of a classroom other than the synagogue they attended. They were not spiritual standouts by any means. Uh, one of the disciples, Matthew, is actually uh, a tax collector. I mean, that's as low as you can get in that society as a part of the Jewish community, a tax collector. You're a traitor. And yet he is given this invitation to be a disciple of the king. They were not spiritual standouts. You know, Jesus, they followed Jesus. And he would teach and they'd be scratched their heads. What's he saying? I don't get it. Master, what do you mean by that parable? What are you talking about? Peter, do you know what he's talking about? I don't know, Andrew. Ask James. James, what's he talking about? I don't know. Ask John. John, what's he talking about? I don't know. Ask Jesus. And, and they, they fell asleep at important prayer meetings. Very important times. Uh, they, they competed with one another who could be in the best position to have the most power. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are running through these guys' heads as they're following Christ. They don't have a lot of compassion at times, wanting Jesus to display his power by bringing forth his wrath and condemning these unbelievers. This is the team that Jesus is pulling together. These are the people that he is drawing from. And yet, there's so much hope in that, is there not? That there's, a, there's this beautiful kingdom principle that all of a sudden makes you believe, I can be included in this because he doesn't operate according to worldly standards. He doesn't look for the cream of the crop. That's, it's rare, actually, a kingdom principle is that it's rare for Jesus to look for the cream of the crop. It's more the other way around. And I think the key here is that he says, I will make you disciples. I will make you fishers of men. It's that supernatural creative power that Jesus knows he possesses. He knows he can do this. So he chooses, not randomly, but purposefully, divinely, who he desires to follow him. That invitation goes out to all. And not all choose it. But it has gone out with great forethought. And it reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's the process of discipleship. When you 
heed that call, we are being made by the very power of God. I mean, there's something very, very supernatural happening in the heart of every believer. Because he is accomplishing or God is accomplishing in him what he could or her could never do on their own. And that's what brings God the glory. In fact, the matter is, if it was left up to us, would we even choose God at all when the invitation goes out? I like the way Jesus puts it in John chapter 15, verse 16. Now, this is halfway through the gospel. These guys have already been following. They've already been choosing Christ. And Jesus turns to them and says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. See, from the kingdom perspective, this is the divine work of God. He invites, he calls, he chooses and he makes disciples. Not a random call whatsoever. It's not something impulsive where he just, yeah, you and and you, like we sometimes do, choosing players for a flag football team or something. I don't know what I have to work with, but yeah, you, you, you're a pretty big guy. You come, come on. Ephesians 1, 4 says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, how much forethought is that? So we, we want to feel very loved. It's a personable thing here. When God invites us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, when he, when he so beautifully and purposefully and meaningfully chooses, and he chooses for a reason, and he makes disciples for a reason, it's, it's to bear the kind of fruit that God wants to bear in this world. There are certain things that he wants people to see, and so he chooses certain people to bring forth that kind of fruit, that that God might get the glory. I'm pretty confident that the disciples were likely surprised that Jesus invited them to be his disciples. Because you've got to be thinking in that day and age, uh, no rabbi would ever pick me, just a fisherman. I don't know for sure, but I'm just, I'm just surmising that that's the case. But I think I can say quite confidently that the disciples were certainly surprised in what the power of God was making them and what it meant to make them disciples. When Jesus, the fisherman, stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel message and 3,000 souls are turned from darkness to light, 3,000 disciples are made with one sermon. I think that probably surprised him in one sense. Or when Jesus sends them into the villages with the authority and the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. I think they were surprised in what God was doing in their hearts and making of them what they were becoming. It was the power of God. The power of God does unexpected things in us for the glory of God. The thing that he is doing in them and the reason that he is exhibiting himself in them is because he wants them to invest in other men. He wants and, and other people. He wants them to share the works and the message and the truth that Christ is sharing with them. Jesus didn't plan on doing it himself. 
And so he he builds a team and he calls specific people. I like the words of Isaiah as he contemplates his call in life in Isaiah 49, 1 through 3. It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Even Isaiah was aware as he ministers, God's making him into something. He's doing this great thing in him. He senses it. And it. Even while he was in his mother's womb. So it's, it's this strategy of the kingdom. And, and as we think about this, again, it's how, how incredible is it that God had us of all people, me of all people, on his mind as he built his kingdom before the foundation of the world and knew the beginning from the end. And knew what all all the walks, different walks of life that we would come from and all the different things that we would engage in in our lifetime. All the successes and all the failures. And he picks. Handpicked crew, if you will. And everyone in Christ has this same commission of the first disciples. See that the, the office of discipleship is still going and we're a part of it. We're in it. There's this continuity of the good news that Jesus wants shared. The message hasn't changed. So we are all laborers in the fields. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's one of the roles of discipleship is that God wants to make an appeal to the world He wants to make an appeal to certain people, and he uses us to do that. Just like Isaiah was the mouthpiece of God. And what is that appeal? He says in this verse, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is of great concern to God. This is an idea of, or the shell, or or really the, the foundation, the framework Of what it means to be a disciple. Is that we have a desire to invest in others. That they might be reconciled to God. John MacArthur says. We are the continuity. The modern day mouthpieces of God. Declaring his word. Throwing out the life raft. For those that see their need. To climb in and be saved. We are the building blocks to the kingdom. Links to the thread of redemption. So if we if we come with really very little, if not, if not nothing to bring to the table, then what do we bring when we heed this call? You just bring yourself. You just bring a heart, a heart that's willing, a heart that adores. And then, you know, Jesus is incredible with raw materials. He can work wonders with raw materials. So we we bring him our raw self. And if you think about it, the disciples that Jesus picked, really, it's a rebuke. And Jesus has a sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle way of rebuking the modern day establishment. But it is somewhat of a, a rebuke, is it not, that he did not go into Jerusalem and handpick people 
the rabbis and the leaders that were already in place, that were already respected, that already had followers. I mean, you pick this rabbi and you get maybe 50, 100 followers to go with it. He didn't pick those that were known to be astute or or very powerful or the intelligentsia, the famous, the respected, the greatly respected. Look who he turned to. Who would want to be like these guys? Who would want to follow them? What is Jesus doing here? Or maybe it's better stated, what is he not doing here? That kingdom principle. I like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, and familiar, I'm sure, to you. It's, it's humbling and yet incredibly hopeful. For consider your calling, brothers... So what is what is the gospel? What does God want us to consider about this invitation and this walk of discipleship? What does he want us to think deeply about? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world Even things that are not. So not only are we the not many's, we're also the are not's. That word are not is kind of like even the things that were just nothing. They were unnoticeable. They were not making any kind of mark or dent in the world to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of. Of God, so that is as it is written, verse thirty-one. Let one who boasts boast in the Lord. Isn't it interesting that God really has this thing against people boasting in themselves? God, it, it's God's work, and God wants to credit. It's just not right, and God has this thing about boasting, and so it's almost like he he goes overboard or uses extreme examples so that. He gets the glory and people can't say, yeah, that's just me. It's just my natural self doing this. The idea is that that people will be wowed at the power of God and what he does in people's hearts. It's interesting that a lot of times the church actually wants to employ worldly ways of thinking into their process of building the church. And a lot of us, what do we, we think to ourselves, if we could just get this celebrity, if we could just get this great person, this reputable, famous person, if they would just become Christians, just think how much the kingdom of God would expand. If we could just get all the great people out here. That's worldly thinking. Did you know that... <clears throat> When the great celebrities or these great people actually come to Christ and all of a sudden you hear such and such singer or whatever athlete, they came to Christ, that most of the time it's a disaster. Most of the time it's a fail. It's it's an impulse of some kind. Very rarely does that pay off. But but the main point is that's not even kingdom thinking. Now, there are exceptions, obviously. But it's not the norm in the kingdom, and yet that's the norm in the world. And so he, he picks people and he turns them into something that just kind of blows the world's mind and and causes them to scratch their head. And then he gets the glory that he deserves because it's supernatural power that belongs to him. 
And he says, I will make you fishers of men. I'll do it. I'm committed to it. You follow me. I'll make it happen. That's my work. That's what I do. A disciple maker. And I want you to be, make disciples as well by sharing the works that I share with you. Are we fishers of men? Where are we in our season of life, in our season of following Christ? And there are lots of different seasons. There's a lot to learn. But of great concern to God is this idea of investing in others and being fishers of men. How are we doing with that? Back in the, I think it was the 80s or 90s, a big, the big book to read for evangelism was Evangelism Explosion by D. James Kennedy. And in that book, he quotes, 95% of Christians have never led someone to Jesus. That's pretty sobering. I read that. I thought, well, that was a while ago. And plus, that, that's not enough information to me. What does that mean? They, they witnessed, but the person just didn't accept Christ. What does that mean? So... A more relevant, perhaps, quote from 2012 Lifeway Research. They say, when it comes to discipleship, churchgoers struggle most with sharing Christ with non-Christians, according to a recent study of church-going American Protestants. It was conducted by Lifeway Research, found 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith I don't know, can't imagine what the other 20% uh, feel, but so 80% say yes, it's reasonable. We have a responsibility to share our faith, but 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. So I don't say that to make us leave here in shame and, and false guilt. It's just, this is our culture. This, these, these are how... The American churches, or at least the Protestant churches, are thinking and acting about discipleship. It's just a, in a reflection of the kind of heart we have or the kind of job we're doing. What I want to do is uh, kind of start to wind down now and read a parable. It's a little lengthy, but it's very, very appropriate, I think, for our passage at hand. It's out of a Presbyterian journal. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful life-saving station, and so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with this station and give of their time and give of their money and their effort for the support of this great work. New boats were purchased and new life-saving crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those that were saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering for its members. And they decorated it beautifully, furnished it with exquisite furniture, and began to use it as sort of a club. 
Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do that work. The life-saving motive still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, some of them had yellow skin, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called to be a life-saving station, but they were finally voted down. And they were told, if you want to have this kind of life-saving station, then you go out and build your own. And so they could go on their own mission. They went down a little ways from this one and they built their own station. And as the years went by, the new station that they had built experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Little parable. So how do we avoid this mindset or how do we get out of this club mindset if we happen to have fallen in it? And I think this passage actually gives us the answer to that question. And it's found in verse 22. Look how the disciples responded to the invitation. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. What is that? It's immediate obedience. Immediate obedience is an incredible thing. And it's how discipleship needs to to launch. And it's how it needs to live. We can't really be disciples without this kind of Obedience, it's yes, I'll follow. And and they literally dropped their nets. I mean, they, they dropped their livelihood. They dropped everything that they knew. I mean, just dropped it right out of their hands when the call came. And and left were willing to leave it behind, were willing to see what the master had in mind for them, to learn about the kingdom and the purpose and the way and the truth and the life. A lot of times we find ourselves waiting for some kind of stirring or waiting for some kind of passion. The text doesn't even tell us how passionate the disciples were, does it? We have no idea what was going on in their minds other than through their actions. What the text does clearly show is they responded with immediate obedience. You know they didn't know what was to come yet. And yet they responded with immediate obedience. They knew enough of this master. They loved him enough. They respected it enough. They had enough of a vision of the kingdom that they knew whatever I'm leaving behind, it's okay. Based on where I'm going and where he will take me. 
Immediate obedience is often the spark that will give us the passion that we want. That will take us to the places that we want to go. That we cannot get to without immediate obedience. You know, I think a danger of fellowships, beautiful, lovely, awesome fellowships like our own, is that we could become so enamored with the richness of what we have, become so enamored with the richness of of what God has done in us, that we could forget the loss. We could forget that there are others out there. We could become so enamored with, with the praise and the worship we have that we forget that there are others out there that need to sing to the glory of God and give Him praise. And we could forget that there are others out there that, want, that need the kind of teaching that we're getting, the kind of growing that we are doing. Immediately they left the boat. And they left their father and followed him. I'm going to close with uh, this example from John MacArthur. Um, John MacArthur, by the way, has been in the ministry for, I guess, 51 years. Now it was 50 years last year. He's been a pastor for 50 years. In his early days, he was in this quartet. Apparently, he also sings, which I did not know. But he goes on to tell this story and he names some names of these guys that his church would probably know. We don't know. But anyway, he was in this um, quartet and uh, he says, we had this theme song for our quartet. And the title of it was Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. I've never heard that song, but it's, it's a hymn. Maybe some in here have heard it. If he's been in the ministry for 50 years, it may be an older song. Uh, So let the lower lights be burning. And he said, we used to sing it all the time. It was our favorite song. It was our theme song. And then afterwards, uh, people would come up and and they'd say, wow, that's a a great song. And, you know, what does it mean? And he said, well, I'd just say, yeah, isn't that a wonderful tune? That's an awesome song. And I'd just shake my head. And he said, finally, it, it dawned on me that I didn't know what it meant. Let the lower lights be burning. So what are the lower lights? Well, he did some research into this hymn, and he found that the story comes from a story by D.L. Moody. And he said, uh, Moody said a vessel was coming into the Cleveland Harbor on a stormy night. And in order for the vessels to know where it was to locate itself, to come in safely, that there were two lights. And there was one light up on the uh, cliff high, and there was another light on the coast. And so the ships knew to come in between these Two lights, and that was their safe passage into the harbor. But one particular night, uh, the pilot saw the upper lights on the bluff burning, but not the lower. And there was a great storm at sea, and he desperately needed to get in. And one of his assistants said, shouldn't we just stay out here because we can't see the lower, lower lights? He said, well, we can see the upper light. We need to get out of this storm. And so they tried to make it in. And they wrecked and the entire crew, everybody on board, drowned. And they drowned because uh, the lower lights were not shining. And so Moody says, the upper lights in heaven are burning as brightly as ever. What about the lower lights? Where are the the lower lights? The light of Christ. Come follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of Men And they followed him and he made them fishers of men. And that's what we read about and that's what we study. 
you know what? Those those disciples changed their little part of the world through the power of God that changed their hearts and brought down the high and lofty things and raised up that's what was that which was good and pure. And they changed their little section. They changed their little workplace, their their homes, their communities, their little pond, their little sea, their little lake, whatever it is. They they changed that area of the world for the glory of God through their obedience to him. And it starts with a confession of faith and then dropping things for the sake of God. That's where it starts. Close with this. Uh, this is my final, con- third final, and final conclusion, <laughs> Sonia. But just have to throw this in there because John MacArthur said it. He said, you know, a stationary foghorn has its value, but nobody ever got rescued out of the sea by a stationary foghorn. I can come in here Sunday after Sunday and honk and blow the whistle, but it's going to take well-trained, life-saving crew. Crews that are out there picking the souls out of the sea, and that's you. We give our Father praise that He would invite people like us to be a part of His wondrous, supernatural kingdom. May God bless the preaching of His Word, and may He get the glory in our lives as we are still being made. In Jesus' name, amen.